everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of the Chief Librarian Podcast. I am Chris Morgan, your Chief Librarian, still on the wagon, keeping up the momentum after getting episode 11 out. And we are here today to talk about 40K Nostalgia. Now, I have a very special guest, the one and only Adam Solis from TFG Radio, who is joining us for a very long nostalgia segment today. I had another interview lined up. However, things kind of fell through when the person had a grandchild. So as excuses go, I guess I'll accept that. Before we get into the nostalgia stuff, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some announcements and things. For example, we have now the affiliate link that should be attached to the show notes. That is something that Frontline has graciously set up so that if you click that link and go to their store and buy something, it is a way of supporting this show. And I am very grateful for anything you can do to help support this. This is first and foremost a labor of love. I didn't really start this expecting to make anything out of it in terms of a lifestyle. And that really hasn't changed. But all the same, uh, Frontline is basically hosting and distributing this all on their own dime. I'm simply supplying with them with the content and anything you can do to support them and the good friends I have over there is greatly appreciated. War Games for Warriors was this last weekend. I had a great time there with my very, very silly Blood Angels list, which I unsurprisingly lost my first two games with, but managed to come back and win my last four. So a four and two record with basically a meme list for the weekend was a pretty good time. And we were able to raise quite a bit of money for charity. Last announcement I heard, I think we got over $10,000 raised between Children's Miracle Network and the Fisher House Foundation. And I think that that's awesome. Kudos to everybody who organized the event. A big thank you to everyone who attended. And next year, I'll be a, a lot more able to shout out the event beforehand. I would also like to just say thank you again to my wife, to all of you who very supportingly pushed me out the door to get me to do this, knowing that I would regret missing it. And she would have been very much right. So thank you to my lovely lady for that. Other events coming up locally here, we have the biggest tournament in Utah coming up. The Salt Lake Open is going to happen, I believe it's the third weekend of August. Yes, that's August 19th through the 21st for a three-day 40K event, planning on having over 100 players. Definitely something you'll want to check out. For those of you who are not already aware, there's been a change to the way that ITC scores and event sizes are implemented. There's no longer the 32 player cutoff for a GT or however many it is for a major. It is now just a simple algorithm based on number of attendees. That being said, with the growth of 40k over the years, particularly in this community, we wanted to try to create something. I say we, I've barely been involved in the creation of it. However, I do want to just promote it really fast because as someone who started off running six-man tournaments here years and years ago. I am nonetheless so happy to see that the growth of the community around here has just kind of exploded. And we're getting people from all around who are coming in to participate. 
I know that uh, I've heard some some whispers of people from Nevada, people from Arizona, people from Idaho, even some people from Colorado have talked about coming. Of course, there's always the people who like to travel from places like California who can travel a little bit more often. want to get the word out. Uh, just encourage you to support the event. And even, you know, even if you don't think you can win, which that's only part of the reason you go to a tournament, right? Unless you're, what, Richard Siegler? <laughs> Is to come hang out with good people. And I can guarantee that you will not find a better Warhammer community than in Utah. So definitely come check it out. I don't really have any other event announcements or anything going on like that. So far as personal hobby progress is concerned, the basement walls are now there. There's there's walls there. It's it's dry walls. In fact, the walls are not wet. They are dry, though soon they will be mudded. And this just goes to show how little I understand where the terminology for construction stuff comes from. That being said, getting those walls done and mudded and then cleaned up and having the hobby room just an actual room now where there's like power outlets, there's light, there's space in there. It's very exciting for me. I went out and picked out flooring for that this week. So hopefully there will continue to be progress on that and I will be able to get back to painting shortly because I have a long list of things that I need to get to in terms of hobby. And it only got worse during the Horus Heresy release, because, man, I mean, I don't even know why I needed so many of those things, but I did. I already have a Spartan. I already have 40 painted tactical Marines, at least. I know I have about 40 assault Marines. I don't have any Mark VI, though, and, you know, you gotta, you gotta catch them all. So, here I come, Beakies. Though if I had to pick a model that I'm the most excited to just kind of rip into, it is the Kratos Heavy Assault Tank. That thing is beefy and delicious. Now some of you may be wondering, it's like, wait, hold on, if you have that many Blood Angels and stuff already put together, why don't you consider starting a new Legion? And the answer to that question is... Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that question actually is yes, but probably not in the way that you were expecting. But I will just leave you with that little tease of some of my future plans. And we will go ahead and get started with the description of the upcoming segments. My talk with Adam from TFG Radio, I thought was it was really a good time. It was a lot of fun. He's a solid dude. We've been judging the LVO together for quite a few years. And of course, he's been around for about as long as the hobby's been around. He writes the GW sort of, I guess you could call it the Grognard series that shows up on the Frontline Gaming blog, comes out on every Sunday. And his articles are basically just little dips into nostalgia here and there. So we talk about some of the basics of, of Warhammer, some of the things that have changed over the years. We talk about some of the things that people seem to have some weird kind of controversy mentalities over, you know, even even down to the aforementioned Beakies and historical future science fiction wargaming. So we talk a little bit about all of that. Now that my other interview finally just kind of fell through, I will be giving you a little bit of my own sort of soliloquizing over 40k nostalgia, asking some questions about what actually is good from the past. 
and kind of do a bit of a health check on Warhammer as a hobby and a game, just like state of the game. What is going on right now? What are people talking about? What are people excited about? What are people tired of? So look forward to that after the interview with Adam. For now, though, brace yourselves, put on your psychic hoods and prepare to enter the Librarius. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another segment of the Chief Librarian Podcast. I am your host, Chris Morgan, and I am joined today by Adam Solis from TFG Radio. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing all right. Hello, everybody. So, Adam, tell everybody a little bit about what you do in the community. What I do. Um, most people know me from L- being an LVL judge and also uh, judging most of the most of the frontline events. Uh, the last one I did was Cherokee Open, and I'm doing uh, Bay Area Open uh, later this month. I also run a few, a number of uh, RTTs and a couple GTs in our local area in Southern California, mainly the Los Angeles, Pasadena area. Um, I also help with playtesting and basically anything 40K related, whether it's and it's mainly 40K. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we we do a lot of that stuff together. That's that's how we, yeah. we got to know each other was. I think the first time we kind of hung out was when I helped judge my first year at LVO. And then yes. we met up at the Boise Cup. Yes, at, Boise at, Cup. Yeah, that same year. Talked a bit then and we've just kind of seen each other at events every year since then. <laughs> yes. And now we, we play test and, and we get salty with John and all the other stuff. And you you in particular, <laughs> uh, another another thing people may not be familiar with you about or or may not know you from is the frontline series of articles that you write every week i think they come out on sundays it's the the gw grognard right yeah and and that was (laughs) the genesis of that was mainly uh reese just wanted like a, a like a filler article but he wanted it to be like um if you remember uh, a family guy where well, the one episode where he does the grind my gears, that's like those <laughs> editorial pieces like Andy yeah, Rooney. Yeah, yeah. If anybody who remembers who Andy Rooney is, which most people probably don't nowadays. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those like old man yelling at the clouds type of articles in, in in essence. I basically talk about whatever comes to mind. Some of it is actual like advice some of it is just you know nonsense that i put out there whatever pops in my head and reese has been kind enough to give me free reign to do that um as long you know within within you know good taste and within reason um i don't go uh clickbaity or i try not to anyway um <laughs> for sure but it and, and a lot of it has to do with like old, older gw games or models or our game systems that i used to play so that hence and for those that don't know, a grognard is basically uh, someone that's been around for a long time. It's actually a French word. Yeah, um, so no guarantees fine. on the pronunciation of that one in actual French. But uh, yeah, I, I call it. Most people just call it, uh, describe it as grognard, but I don't know if that's actually how it's pronounced. My wife would know. She speaks French. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't but, know. Uh, I I don't either. And it's it's generally a it, it was a term describing veterans of the Napoleonic Wars. Yes. After after Napoleon's fall from from power, uh, people who used to just grumble about the way things mm-hmm. were and 
and all that sort of stuff. And that's, I think that's one of the things that makes this, you know, makes you really fitting for this segment. Cause what we're talking about today has to do with like the good old days of 40 K and talking about, were they really all that good? Like what is how long you've been playing for a long time, like a long. Um, so for me, I first bought the first thing I bought GW was the space first edition Epic Space Marine box with the black Dark Angels on the cover with the guy that looks like Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, I know that. one. Uh, so that was a that was late 80s, uh, I guess, 89 or 90, maybe. Yeah. So that's um, about two years after the game started. Yeah, so and then I got the Adeptus the Adeptus Titanicus game. And what drew me in was actually the Horus Heresy, which is funny because the Horus Heresy box sets coming out. <laughs> <laughs> um and so and that led me to Rogue Trader, because this is still the Rogue Trader time. This is before yep. second edition. Yep. And what's funny is I didn't buy that until my I think it was my freshman year in college. So this is like 91 or 92. It's been a long time, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one I, I bought in. I remember buying it in San Francisco because I was going to school up there. And it was and it, and I, I just I fell in love with it. Like the first just the whole setting and and, and the satire and, and recognizing certain things from other other sci-fi genres in it the way because that's the way gw operated at the time um but that that's kind of where how long i've been playing so and the the joke among those that have played rogue trader is you never really play rogue trader because mm-hmm. the rules are just so convoluted yeah it was, it was something <laughs> so, I, I've, I've read it i i wasn't actually playing yeah. rogue, rogue trader myself but like it was the wild west basically yeah yeah. They, they had a few supplements. They had a bunch of supplements afterwards, but and it kind of coalesced. But it wasn't until second edition where it really, really became what it was, what it is, and what we know it today. The funny thing about that, though, is about I can't remember now. I think it was like five or six years prior to that. I actually bought a box set of fantasy stuff from Games Games Workshop, but I didn't know it was Games Workshop at the time. Mm. It was just a box Who's of. Uh, I remember this distinctly because my brother and I had to like make up a game using a lego castle that we had yeah and but it came with uh 10 dark elves 10 wood elves and like a it was like a sampler mm. it was like a sampler of every yeah. like all the major races there were six so you got 60 models 10 10 of each race like 10 dwarves 10 uh skaven uh 10 goblins 10 elves it, and but at the time, I didn't know it was GW. I didn't know what any of those numbers did. Mm-hmm. We just made it up as we went along. But but it wasn't until Space Marine that I actually like really started to dive into the Games Workshop world, so to speak. Yeah, I always thought that Al Pacino box was funny because it was like the best way to like <laughs> casually say help say hello to my little friends. Like, yeah, it's <laughs> just that's just so. I, I just I just thought it was a cool picture. <laughs> Um, and that's how they get you, especially when you're an adolescent, you know. Oh, yeah, because that was yeah. that was the edgy thing, you know. Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, memories. Because I, <laughs> I I know all that art from the box sets from like my my dad's game group where, you know, if we went over to their house playing a historical something or other that, you know, the boxes would be around. I remember going over with my dad to one of his old friends. uh you know, game basements and there were entire shelves full of 
huge, like massive, epic 40k armies. And yeah. that was before I'd really done anything more than Space Hulk. I was I was still pretty young then, because I think I I think that was before we we moved. That was before I was seven years old, and I didn't really get into 40k until Space Hulk, and that was when I was about eight years old. But okay, um, you know that's that's kind of how I got started. Is I got started with you know the Space Hulk board game, and um, you know we painted up the Terminators like Blood Angels, like the box art, and you know <laughs> a an obsession was born. But uh, yeah, I mean those there were so many of those little games out back then, and because you had oh, yeah. that, I mean there was there's Rogue Trader, which turned into Second Edition, which was also it was like. The just about as Wild West, and then yeah. third edition is when 40k as we know it kind of coalesced into a thing, and you know that was that was when there were more unified armies. That's when the lore started. You know, it was less, it was fishtailing less. You know, the lore wagon was fishtailing yeah. less, and just kind of started to settle into a kind of a steady rhythm, and the rule set stayed fairly comparable in terms of the general principles you know unit stats and everything all the way mm -hmm. up until the eighth edition switch from that point because yeah. the change from second to third was pretty drastic um yeah but but again with second edition you still had elements of like the the um like you mentioned like the wild west in terms of some of the the uh the abilities and and what Assassin's some warrior did you know if anyone played like imperial guard and your opponent brought a what was it virus outbreak or virus grenade oh, oh the vortex bomb was it the vortex no grenade? it was the vi it was the virus one because if you okay. weren't in power armor on a like a four plus your guys died just yeah fire they just died whatever. yeah you know and then those like you said the vortex grenades that stay on the table and go all over the place mm -hmm. you know at one point you had terminators riding bikes you know if depending mm -hmm. which book you had i think it was space wolves that did that <laughs> that's that sounds about right so you still had elements of that, that Wild West aspect in, in second edition. And then when they made the change to third is when they kind of they kind of like everything kind of stratified in terms of like mm -hmm. a no, known fluff and armies and what they can do and, and what they can't do mm -hmm. and what abilities they have. It's, it's kind of funny watching like the, the early stages of like the idea phase of something that's, that's starting to pick up, because at a certain point, somebody takes all of that emergent chaos of you know throw this at the wall and see if it sticks mm -hmm. and starts to organize it into yeah into something it starts to try and create consistency and turn the jokes into depth you know because a lot a lot of 40k even now is is still jokes you know, there are still jokes and references and things but it does take itself a lot more seriously now and I would say people and fans in general take it a lot more seriously now than in the very beginning. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's part of like the natural progression of an idea when it comes to dealing with something that is consumed, you know, where you have consumers, where you have an audience when you're not just doing it. Like, I mean, a D&D &D campaign with the same five people will start wild and probably end wild. You know, right. Um, yeah. But when you're dealing with something that starts reaching out to millions of people and you're trying to create like a consistency or a brand, you know, things, things start to settle in and ideas start to get codified and it becomes distinct. You know, that was, 
that was the thing that fantasy struggled with. So while fantasy, like Warhammer Fantasy, had a lot of its own kind of world building, it was still very much a classic fantasy setting. You know, you, you could yeah, imagine a D&D module that was Warhammer, you know, that was the old world. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, Warhammer 40K, I think that's one of the reasons that it took off more than Warhammer Fantasy. This is just my opinion, is that it offered something different and distinct that was still rooted in, I guess, the, the, the gestalt knowledge of science fiction from like dune and starship troopers and 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 you know alien yeah. like it had all of that stuff but it definitely put its own spin on it um and it you know the flavor in your mind felt very 40k it reminded you of the things that you loved while still living on its own yeah and i think i think the issue that that fantasy had towards the end was just the like you mentioned that it's limited compared to 40k where you have a whole universe or, or galaxy at the very least mm -hmm. fantasy you just had that one little world even even then gw at the time never expanded outside of that pseudo european europe slash you know northern africa south america north america sphere mm -hmm. which so they never until you know a total war three they never expanded in Cathay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They never did Grand Cathay. That's right. I mean, so and, and I, I think, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so, so I think that's, that was part of the reason why, at least for myself, you know, it, why fantasy just never really appealed too much. I did play fantasy. Um, I started with fifth edition, um, but it just never really caught, caught my fancy the way, uh, 40k did and in some way the way age of sigmar age of sigmar has has that same uh expansion like 40k has now because if you look at the maps of the uh the different realms they're yeah. huge yeah i mean the the when when they in setting a second edition age of sigmar when they showed the map of like here's what people are fighting fighting over it's like a little speck inside of the, of the larger realm mm-hmm so they have enough space to expand is probably infinitely at this point. It doesn't matter if there's a there's a map of it. It could probably expand to however much they want. Oh, they'll just make a new realm when they run out of space. Well, even then, you still have to explore nine realms and they haven't mm -hmm. even explored like a tenth of one yet. So, yeah, yeah definitely a deliberate move on their part. Yeah. And a, another thing to separate their IP from, you know, their Lord of the Rings brand. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. But. You know, it's we were talking a little bit about ideas that stuck and you know, there are so many of those old ideas that didn't stick. And and I'm I'm looking right at you, squats, a.k.a. <laughs> leagues of Votan, that that didn't stick. But here it is back. And the legend of what a squat was like the, the community kind of took the idea of squats. Right. And gave it a cultural identity within the hobby. Of right. This is what happens to to something that isn't popular enough to to spend money developing further. It gets squatted, yeah. and yeah, the verb now. <laughs> yeah, it 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 kind of turned into its own thing, right? Yeah. And now, because of the, I guess you would call it the the reputation, the infamy of of squats, 
and everything that that meant to the community. Like we kind of kept squats alive in that sense. And now pulling, pulling those ideas from the past that didn't stick. Here we are. Here we go. We have a brand new faction, quote unquote, brand new coming to 40 K that is, that is basically just a, a recycled version of the old squats. Uh, yeah. Now, a lot of people have a lot of different complaints about Warhammer. One of the big complaints that they have about 40K in particular is that there are so many human factions. And the squats are technically a human faction, but we all know they're dwarves. We all know that. Yeah. That's, I mean, it, it even sounds like old world dwarves in the fact that these Votons are like ancestor AIs or whatever, right? Uh, right. Very, still very dwarfy. Uh, which is probably why I'm totally going to buy into it all because that, you know, squats, the, the squatting happened before I really got into the game and I've always been the dwarf guy. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, you know, I play dwarfs in uh, Age of Sigmar. You know, I have the Fire Slayers and I have the, the character and overlords and I have huge Lord of the Rings dwarf forces and generic fantasy, you know, from like the old glory range of metal miniatures. I don't know if you know what those are. But uh, yeah, I, no, I'm familiar with the I've I've I played historicals before I played uh, 40K or Games Workshop games. So like and it, I still do. It's a given. It's a given that yeah. I'm going to buy into to leagues of Votan. But <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know that I could. Maybe I'll just call them leagues. I don't know. It's, well, it they call like, themselves the kin. So, uh, well, maybe that might be a better one, because otherwise I feel like I'm talking about League of Legends, which I I don't play. I called them the just the Votan. The Votan. Well, that was before we found out what a Votan was. Yeah, the <laughs> Votan as opposed to the Vopale. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, too too many too much pun fodder there. But I mean, people have been wanting since the Tau and the Necrons came came around. Like, what are some new aliens? Like, what are some like that's the big complaint that I was talking about a little bit earlier is that. You have this entire galaxy. We have references to like the HUD, which are basically like 40K Skaven, if I understand yeah. correctly. And there are all of these things and ideas that fall outside the scope of quote unquote humanity in the Warhammer 40K universe. And instead of trying the new creative ideas, like many of the fantastical and farcical Xenos races that you read about, even in like the, the Horus Heresy books, like... Mm -hmm the um the interrex or oh, right any of these other human civilizations that existed that evolved so deviantly from the base genome as to be unrecognizable but were still very interesting like none of those sort of free form creative ideas make their way to the tabletop they always kind of stay in our imaginations via the novels and and vague references on page whatever of your codex from the you know three editions ago that was mysteriously missing from the latest version or you know and then there's the whole primaris thing which i'm we can talk about but like where are where are the new ideas like are are the good old days so good that those ideas that didn't work then are now going to work now simply because of the infamous reputation of their failure like how tell me mm -hmm. what you think about that um, it's, it's hard. I, I, 
I talked to one of I talked to someone about squats when they were uh, about a couple of years ago, uh, pre-COVID, and one of the one of the designers. And they they were when they when they were talking about squats off, they kind of mentioned that at the time they were having trouble with their design space. Mm-hmm. They made in Rogue Trader and they made them you know this bike basically a biker gang, yeah, uh, a mid uh, a small biker gang and. With trains. Yeah, with, with trains if you played <laughs> Epic. It's funny because the Epic version lasted longer than the the forty the forty K version. Um but they they didn't they didn't know what to do with them. And in all honesty, from what I was told, there was there nobody was clamoring for them. So after they went from Rogue Trader to second edition, they came out with the you know, the black pamphlet which had which was basically like the index when we did eighth edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were in there, but they were never given a codex. Um, and there was nobody clamoring from what I was told. Nobody was clamoring. Hey, where's the squat codex? Where's the squat codex? Where's the squat codex? There was nothing like that. I think over the years, as people talked about things getting squatted and, you know, squ- squats used to be a thing. And then there's the fluff piece where they got eaten by Tyranids or they're helping out the Tau. I think over the years, because it became such a um, a myth and legend, as opposed to something tangible that they always see, I think that created the buzz that people wanted to see it. Where it got when where it got to the point where your Games Workshop decided that maybe it was worth the risk of creating this army that people are probably going to want because they've been clamoring for it because they didn't know they wanted it until it was gone. Essentially, it's one of those type of things. Yeah. Yeah, and it be, and because a lot of the old gamers or the grognards talked about them, you know, it, it creates this mystique about the army or about you know the because that right now, if you don't count some of the chaos or like the variant army lists, like crew like a like the crew mercenary army or the yeah, lost yeah, yeah. and the damned mm-hmm. or or the renegades and heretics, they're really the only main army that's really been discontinued. Sure, yeah, as a whole as a whole line. Yeah, I, I mean. From from the main line, yeah, because yeah. I mean, there's been Forge World things that have come and go over the years. Um, yeah, and, and, and there's and there's troops. certain uh, yeah, there were certain like a white dwarf or like the Croup Mercenary Army. That's a yeah. that was like a white dwarf, you know, thing or the ones from the Eye of Terror campaign, which Lost in the Damned, Thirteenth uh, Company. I love that you know, campaign. I do too, and I remember playing in it. But but there, and there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of those army lists were yeah but but they weren't main like rulebook army lists so i think that mystique of the squats and like oh they're never coming back and gw are saying they're never coming back or people saying they're never coming back and and i think it created this buzz and excitement that now that they're back that people are excited about it well and it almost kind of feels like with age of sigmar and the the carriage and overlords was almost like a dry run for this idea Right. In, in a certain way, like, is there is there an interest out there for dwarves with guns, like with fancy, quote unquote, <laughs> magic guns that it's not really yeah. magic because we're dwarves. So sure. so with, with 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 the league, I'm curious what. I'm, I'm curious what their like design philosophy is, because mm-hmm. uh, there was a recent. um uh, video on YouTube where uh, the guy compares the different squat alternative sculpts from other companies, mm-hmm. and some did like 
a direct, basically a direct copy of the old Rogue Trader era models. Some were just totally different. Some were like you even you couldn't even tell. They look they just look like miniature humans as opposed to dwarves. Sure. Um, but so I'm curious what what GW how GW is going to take this their their just that design for that army and, and where they where they go with it. Um, yeah, I mean I've I've been hoping for in Age of Sigmar like some kind of golem or you know some, some mm-hmm. dwarf construct of of some kind. And I wonder if, especially where there's this insinuation of, of artificial intelligence, if there will be right. some kind of mecha golem that the the leagues will use. And this is just me, you know, shooting from the hip. We we both, you know, we've talked about it. we both play test. We don't know anything yeah, about it. Yeah. We're just speculating. And I think that it would be really cool if if it did carve a niche that was more than just, you know. Uh, you know, Adeptus Mechanicus have their sort of niche, but it's it's like we're we're humans, but we're cyborgs, but we're still yeah. basically people. And you know the the images that I've seen so far for the leagues, you know, for for the kin, are encouraging to me because they do look a little bit different, mm-hmm. and they still have some of that dwarfy appearance, which is what I want. Though there's something there's something in me that just wants them not to be human. Right. And I that's probably because I've been reading too many Godric Gernison novels. But <laughs> um yeah, and because he's 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 the character who made the old old world appealing for me. It's like between right. him and the Total War games, I, I started actually getting interested in the the world of the old world, the the thing before Age of Sigmar. And right. yeah, that that is an example to me though of here is a a modern take on an old dead, you know, quote unquote dead IP that there's there was still some life in it. There was still some life in it. It just needed the right kind of love. And it was interesting to me that Total War was the thing that was able to breathe life and love into the old world setting, which especially considering that it came out well after Age of Sigmar oh, yeah. was dropped. Yeah. And the old world was dead. Like you would think that they would just be pushing, pushing for their new IP to be represented in this video game world. But instead, Total War looked to the past and found something that still, you know, you, you defibrillate it and get its heart beating again. And people loved it. And I got interested into the old world where I wasn't interested in it before. Um, <laughs> And I wonder how much, you know, 40K, though, can continue to survive, much like the rest of our popular media, by just being self-referential. You know? Yeah. I it, it, I think it comes down to, unfortunately, uh, well, I say unfortunately, but it, I mean, in the end, Games Workshop is a business, so they're going to do what they think will garner money. Yeah. Uh, and with the success of the Total War series, I mean, why wouldn't you bring back the old world, you know, in. in, in yeah. Like, you know, like it, what they're doing with. 40. Yeah. Like what, you know, and why not? You're going to bring you're going to bring back probably a bunch of people that used to play, you know, and you're going to probably get people that played Total War, you know, and, and especially since they're doing the era that they plan on doing and the armies they plan on doing. 
you know, uh, you're going to have like a full Kislev army this time where instead of just like a few Lancers or whatever. Yeah. You know, so so I I think it's it's hard to say, like most people were like, I would never recycle this idea, you know, or this thing we did in the past. Why would we bring it back? Mm-hmm. But some people are are like that, um, especially older people with more disposable income. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, I, for myself, like I mentioned before, I've been playing since high school, since late 80s, early 90s. So I've gone through the whole gambit of never having enough money, mm-hmm. scraping to have enough money. Yep. And then finally having enough money to, you know, kind of almost almost get what I want. But I still like I still do all this stuff because I get some type of compensation from it. And that include then that just lets me buy more models. Yep. You know, so. So I think I think that. But I don't know how many of us like how many of people like me are out there nowadays, you know, people go through a cycle, especially when Mm -hmm. they have kids where they stop playing for a little while and they come back and when they come back, they want to play what they're used to or what they played in the past. Oh, there's 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 a feeling of and I don't want to overuse the word like safety, but there's a feeling of familiarity. Yeah, that's what they know. Of in yeah, being in known territory that people find comforting when it comes to that sort of stuff. You know, it's one of the reasons that nostalgia works is because you're trying to touch back on those old feelings that you had back in the beginning. Now for me, like I, I feel like particularly with the Blood Angels, they've grown over time. Like their lore and their their coolness has been cultivated and developed properly. Not every faction can really say that. And certainly mm. not a lot of the stuff in the old world can say that, you know, they have to kind of go back and, and turn the old world into the Horus heresy for fantasy. And that's going to be a really tough ask, but there are definitely people who are there who want, want that back. But there's also, I mean, speaking of things that are just referencing other things, I constantly get ads on like Facebook and social media for dozens, like dozens of different either board game or tabletop game companies whose sole advertising avenue is taking jabs at Games Workshop. (laughs) Like, that's it. I know who you're talking about, and yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and any of us who spend any time on social media are are probably yeah. very familiar with that. This this idea is like want a game system that doesn't have forty thousand rules. It's like ah, uh, I understand what you're referencing there. Yeah, I mean that's cute, but their product is not more compelling. No, you know, and 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 it's funny because uh, that particular company makes a lot of the same. Uh, races so you know so mm-hmm. you know and, and so there's a comparison there between the models and and like i mentioned that article that i'll i mentioned that video earlier and it does compare that company's models with other companies models um but that's again tapping into that nostalgia or or something that's missing you know when the when when the uh, old world exploded or was destroyed there are plenty of companies and fan-made uh uh fan-made fan-created companies that took advantage of that and advertised how you could still use the models in their game 
Yeah. Because because yeah. as, as much as we say, like sales weren't as high or it wasn't as popular, there were still people out there that wanted to play in the old world. Uh, and especially as the old world was probably developed earlier and more expansively than, than Warhammer 40K, you know, fantasy always seemed like Games Workshop's main game to me growing up in the hobby. Because there was mm-hmm. always, I mean, all the white dwarfs seemed to focus on Warhammer fantasy and there was all of this lore and, and you know, stuff going on that I didn't really know about. I was always kind of interested in it because I've always liked fantasy stuff. I mean, my first board game was Hero Quest, of all things, you know? Um, yeah. And Hero Quest is it's a Warhammer game. We, <laughs> in all but name, it's a Warhammer game. And right. There is there is this like a, a large number of people who just they had all the stuff still. They still had all of the stuff, multiple armies yeah. even maybe that they just needed something to do with it. Yeah, and 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 like I said before, it, it Games Workshop is a business. They're going to do with what they think will you know give them the most money. Um, and I. And the easiest way to do that, in all honesty, is just to tap into that nostalgia of like, like I used to play all those specialist games, you know, and now they brought back Titanicus, although it's just Titans right now. We'll see if they ever develop it into more. But I played that. I mean, you know, Blood Bowl was still a thing, you know, even after they stopped making it, it was still that's that was that's probably the most vibrant community of the specialist games that I can that I can recall over the years. Yeah, Blood Bowl people love Blood Bowl. I've never yeah. been interested, but. I love their I love their enthusiasm. But but that's what I mean. So they brought I think Blood Bowl was the first specialist game they brought back. And it's and it's still going. They still have released. They have that Norsica team, Norsica team uh, coming out or is already out. You know, they're still producing stuff for that. They're still making a few things for Death of Titanicus. Uh, Aeronautica. Well, happens. It happens to be the same scale as Titanicus. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like. (laughs) <laughs> that seems to be on purpose. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, and and in in my estimation, and I don't know anything. Uh, I don't know anything. I mean, I'm just waiting for Battlefleet Gothic to come back. You know, it's it's one of the, the only other specialist games they haven't brought back. I think is Battlefleet Gothic. Uh, I'm not going to count Inquisitor. Yeah, that one because that was super niche, even for this hobby. Oh yeah. Um, what else do they have? Uh, Man of War, you know. But yeah, uh, I don't know. They could bring Man of War. I, I don't know if I'd bring Dreadfleet back. <laughs> I, I could I mean, go out and buy Dreadfleet from. Like, I have a copy, but I I would prefer I prefer Man of War over Dreadfleet. And I, and all these like, all these other companies uh, fill that niche when 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 uh, specialist games went when they stopped making spe- the specialist games. A number of companies came out with their own versions of like a space battle game, a naval fantasy naval game. Uh, you know, so yeah, that for sure. still, people using still a lot of those same it. themes too. Like these are the undead Egyptian army fleet. You know, it's yeah, like, I know. What and same with I Blood Bowl. I mean, if you if you go on any Kickstarter, you'll see people making blood bowl teams or making you know uh ships for a naval you know fantasy naval game that and but i don't know if that's then we were talking earlier back coming around back i don't know how much 
of better back then it was, you know, compared to now, depending, you know, because the game game design in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s is much different than it was than it is now. Oh, definitely. I mean, Battlefleet Gothic was always too convoluted for me. I liked the simpler systems. I just wanted to play with more hammer models. And, right. You know, I think that Battlefleet Gothic, particularly if they did something that was set in the heresy and you got cause some of the most iconic ships in the Imperium, like or in, in the setting in general, come from mm-hmm. the Horus Heresy setting. Because you've got all of the Gloriana class capital ships yeah. that were like, you know, the, the Primarchs palaces in space. And those those are all cool, but like if you ask someone aside from the vengeful spirit. Uh, and a, a Blackstone Fortress. What are the, the, what would you call it? The ships of infamy in the in the forty first millennium. The only thing that comes to mind is the Phalanx and the Rock. Yeah, there aren't really like that many named infamous ships of the forty first millennium, but the ships and the legends of the thirty you know thirty first millennium are. Are all out there there's a there's a patreon out there somewhere where somebody's trying to make you know um 30k ships that are themed after all the different legions and some of them are definitely worse than others um <laughs> my legions in particular uh was gosh it was so disappointing when i saw the final render on that but like <laughs> i i know that games workshop would do something really cool with it you know yeah because they have the chops and that's what some of these other companies who are who are like trying to offer alternatives to the salty jaded x40k fan they're like hey why don't you come over here it's like you know the guy on the street corner opening up yeah i've got some space marines over here for you (laughs) um you know they're all trying to offer knockoffs of this of this product everything you know games workshop is the black hole that's whose gravity well the galaxy of miniature games tends to just kind of float around no one's been able to challenge them yet and if there are if there is a company that is going to capitalize on these old ideas i want them to do it well and so few can do miniature games as well and make miniatures as solid as games workshop can nowadays particularly at that kind of a scale yeah, there there was um, there are two companies in particular that are no longer uh, around, but at the time, they were probably the two most popular, at least in the UK, that made and they both made. One was the the guys who made a uh, drop uh, drop zone commander. You're familiar with that game? Yeah, yeah, I have uh, and, I have the I actually back to their drop fleet commander Kickstarter. Yes, which was a mess. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, the models were, were really nice, and still um, are. I mean, the space station kit that they made was just yeah rad. It was awesome. And and, and the other one did their own version, which was called, I believe, Firestorm Armada. That was their game. Yep. That was and they were both awesome. doing fairly well. What happened with them though was they got a bit too greedy and over overextended on what they on the products they were doing so they weren't giving the proper attention to the rest of the line so they do this thing where like especially uh the guys that did, i think it was spartan games the guys that did war uh uh the armada game they were they were like 
they had like five or six different game systems. They would spend about a few months on this one system, not finish the line and then move on to the next one. So they had, so instead of having complete uh, game systems, they were all incomplete because they were missing stuff. Yeah. And then they bought, then they got the Halo license and then that's basically screwed them over. <laughs> Went out of business. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I, I remember the ships for that coming out and the biggest problem for them. And I think honestly, like if they had done this one thing, it probably would have saved them. Is if they made the scale of those ships comparable with like Battlefleet Gothic and the other space games, because the oh. Halo ship ones were huge. Those ships yeah. were gigantic. Like it was beyond the scale of of anything else that was that was out there right now. And people like to mix their toys together. Yeah, the, it, I was kind of bummed that both of them kind of went under. Uh, because they they were they were pretty good options if you if you were into like space combat like right now I'm playing Star Wars Armada because I like Star Wars and I like ship combat but that's the only option right now that unless you play one of the like one of the ones that you can you like uh, I know Osprey put out one called a billion stars and that's fleet combat but you can use whatever ships you want things like that but you have to know where to look. Yeah, I mean, no. I, I still use the same system that I used growing up with my dad. It was the full thrust system. Oh, okay, yeah. Really simple and easy to understand. Like, even on the show, we've talked about it uh, when putting together, like, the initial game for the, the narrative campaign that's been, unfortunately, put on hold while my basement gets finished. But, yeah, it is a simple enough game, and you can use whatever spaceships you like and have a good time with it. You know, like simple game design that is kind of evergreen seems to be the right answer. And yeah, you know, 40k, like the current state of 40k, merits its own probably series of episodes. We don't necessarily, yeah, that's yeah, but (laughs) like the simpler, the better, the easier to understand, the better, yeah. Um, and it's always this constant war between how do we make this manageable and still let people do things that make them feel cool. Yeah. And, and live out the fantasy. Cause even when you're playing competitively, you are still living out the fantasy of the faction that you're playing. Even if it's, you know, cheesy net list number five. Yeah. You, you with, with, even with competitive games, you can still, still like, if you wanted to tell a story. Very easily. That, yeah. And I think that's a big appeal for 40 K is, I mean, you can you can take almost any game you play, whether it's competitive, narrative, open play, whatever. Especially if it's competitive, you can still tell a story about it. You, you with that model, most of and them. in the mid tables, definitely. <laughs> Even with the top tables, you could probably you could probably tell a story of, of you know infighting among among the Harlequins or or you know whatever <laughs> faction you happen to play. Uh, not sure. everyone agrees. Yeah. Um, if, if you. Uh, if you sign up to my pay uh, pay for narrative guidance service, I can tell you and I can teach you the best ways to, uh, <laughs> to tell stories during your games for the low price of <laughs> never mind. Who am I taking shots at? You know who you are. But uh, but it, you know what I just thought of was that another nostalgia one that the, that GW brought back was a Gene Stealer cult. Yep, that's a nostalgia army. Though there's no I mean, limousine. Gene, yeah. I still wish they had brought back the limos, but <laughs> but that's okay. Because Gene Circle was originally a I want a rogue trader army. Yep. Yeah, I remember was... uh, 
fighting a dude at LVO who had built an entire guard army based off of those old Gene Steeler cult models. <laughs> that was that was at my first LVO. Yeah, so the, I mean that, but that's what I mean. So I mean, Games Workshop is, I guess, I'm a, I don't know if they do market research. I'm assuming they do, and other than just walking into a store, um, but they they probably do have some idea of what people might want to see. Um, and but I don't, and uh, depending on who you talk to, they'll they'll tell you that sometimes they have stuff ready years in advance. Well, I mean. There's, especially if you follow any of the rumor mills or the or the supposed like sources and leaks and things, which I don't go looking for those things and I still end up finding them. But, you know, there are certainly tons of different, this makes sense that it's ready kind of products like primary yeah. Marines with jump packs, for example. Um, I'd be willing to wager without knowing for sure that those models have been ready and available for a while, that that design was finished. Mm-hmm. and that you know it's just waiting for the right conditions for for production and i can only imagine what the game would look like now if covid hadn't happened and the release yeah. schedule hadn't been janked and production hadn't been thrown out of whack you know, I wonder what cool stuff we'd have that we wouldn't have otherwise um but you know that's that's a what how, how would how would you say it Bilbo would call it like the Wither Twos and the Y Fours. Who, who cares? Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's so many ideas that just still haven't been explored mm-hmm. that could be explored, but we still kind of seem stuck in the old days. You know, we, we're stuck with the ideas that were there, and some of them are ideas that didn't work. Now, full disclosure, I'm all in on on the kin. You know, the the leagues. I'm all in. Right. And that's has very little to do with whether I think it's going to be competitive or not, mm-hmm. uh, because that's a fantasy that I want to play out. It's something that, you know, it just seems too perfect for me to have, you know, ancient classic fantasy dwarves and futuristic space dwarves. Um, it all just kind of it's like coming full circle. It's a happy place yeah. for me. And I wonder how much this old stuff is a happy place for other people too. So that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. Yeah. it It's hard because it, people remember like, like chaos is the perfect example. You talk to any chaos player that's been around for about 20 years or 30 years. Well, let me hold on through the math. Yeah. About like over 20 years that played in third edition and they'll always bring up chaos 3.5. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's something you put on a bingo card. Yeah. I bring it up all the time because in all honesty, <laughs> compared to what we've got so far, that was like their high, the high point. It was a book that was very competitive, but at the same time, very, very fluffy. I felt that way about the third edition Blood Angels supplement. You know, like the, the whole mechanic yeah. for choosing your death company. Like, oh, yeah. It has never been better than that. Yeah. Never. Even even the current crusade rules, which are good. And I I think the crusade is like the pinnacle of living the fantasy. Like I mm-hmm. don't think any edition has ever done a better job of letting you role play in the setting with an army than Crusade right. in ninth edition. And it's gone woefully undersung uh 
you know, for, for the goodness of that lost in kind of the obsession with game balance that has just not worked. Mm. But, you know, even, even now it is not as cool as it was when I was playing in third edition and I would roll for a squad of Terminators. Yeah. To see I remember that. How many would fall to the? I once lost four out of five Terminators to the Death Company one game, <laughs> but it wasn't just Terminators. But you know, it was yeah. But it it made that aspect of that faction story real and tangible for every single game, even as it slowed it down a little bit in the beginning. Yeah. Even yeah. so, it was wonderful. It was so now. fun, and I I wish that I could I could still do that. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I yeah, just but I, I was at a game store this last weekend, and I uh, bought another box of Death Company. <laughs> another box. I, I think I have like I don't want to, I don't want to say I have a lot of Death Company, guys. All right. Um, but that fantasy that that memory is so nostalgic and wholesome. It's like I may paint these guys on foot with bolt guns just because that was <laughs> that's nostalgic for me. Like I may do that, so maybe I'm the problem. I don't know. <laughs> what were you going to yeah. say? No, I was just going to say. But as mu- as much as we enjoyed our codexes, you know, in third edition, that doesn't necessarily mean third edition was a good game or r- good rule set. I should say. Oh yeah, it's certainly it's certainly not the best rule set. Yeah, um, rose tinted glasses for sure. Yeah, but but I mean. I mean, I still think fondly of those games I had in th- in third edition, you know, with, with that codex. I, mean, I remember when I got the, when we got the original third edition Chaos Codex, we didn't even have an invulnerable save. The Chaos Lords did not have an invulnerable save. We didn't get an invulnerable save till 3.5. No, it was a White Dwarf article that finally gave us an invulnerable save. Ah, uh, well, you know, traitors. But, you know, and, and so that I think that's part of the reason why 3.5 for a lot of Chaos players um remember it so well you know and and remember how fluffy and how and but and still how good that army was because you can you can have armies or codexes that are very fluffy but they're not very good on the tabletop it doesn't it doesn't translate into being competitive on the tabletop yeah Um, that's for sure and chaos just feels so different now too aesthetically than it did then you know, because even then, you know, I would say Chaos Space Marines looked and felt different than regular Space Marines. But, it, you know, and I will say that, like, the 6th edition starter set, like Chosen, like mm-hmm. that sort of design direction that they went in for the Chaos Space Marines. Yeah. I, I think for a special unit was cool, but a lot of the regular Chaos Space Marines just kind of got, I don't know, pushed out a little bit. And then... You know, the old box dreadnoughts got replaced with Hellbrutes, and I hated that. I hated that change. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not I a big miss, fan of the Hellbrutes. I miss the old Chaos dreadnoughts as someone who never collected and hates the idea and the, and the you know, loyalist through and through. The, the old box dreadnoughts were classic. The metal ones? Yeah. But... <laughs> And the, the like, what, what was it, like the Mark IV B style that had, like, the little helmets in, but they were still sort oh, of that, yeah. you know, you put it in a sock and you could murder somebody yeah. in the street. Like, I still I still have one. I have, you know, the old Metal Furioso. And, uh, yeah. 
that one I had to I had to disassemble it because it had like eight layers of paint on it from when I was a teenager and couldn't settle on a <laughs> on a paint scheme. I had to strip that boy down and I've got but to, that. But yeah, but that's another example of the, the original contemptors into the new contemptors. Yeah. You know, they they took it. They took an original idea. If anyone's ever seen the original contemptors, oh, the one, yeah. they're, t- they're tiny. They look like they come out of Battletech almost. Yeah. And and they they vastly improved the design you know, of the of the Contemptor chassis compared to what it originally was. Yeah, I, I um, love the new Contemptors. That's but I, I and that's and that's what I think. In, in that regard, it's more of an update than in in as opposed to like an it's part nostalgia of like, hey, let's get that. Let's get some money. Nostalgia, some of them nostalgia money. But at the same time, let's update what these are and what they can do. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's an example of doing it well, too. I mean, but there there are certain things and I know that there are, you know, I, I guess you I, I hate to call them marginalized groups of people, but there are purists out there who if it isn't exactly the way that it it was when they remembered it or how they perceive their memory of it, then it's a, a betrayal of the fans. And right. That's that's a whole other can of worms because yeah, there that's, are there that's are in times, every fandom. Well, it, it, there is, and, and I think that what gets lost in there just sometimes the more highlighted extreme cases of their salt, which we, we know that John loves to poke that that bear, uh, so <laughs> to speak. He loves to make fun of those people who, like, it's like the peak cringe of, of that particular viewpoint. But I think there are people who just, like, sincerely care about what the game was, what that thing they loved was like, and see a change to it, like Age of Sigmar from Fantasy. Yeah. And just look at it and think like, this this isn't anything like what I loved. And that sucks. And yeah. their opinion on that often gets lost in the, I'm going to record myself lighting my, my Dark Elf Army on Fire <laughs> video. Like, it's like, wow, dude. And Fair enough. Like that guy totally deserved the the rage of Sigmar, so to speak, uh, treatment for for that. Uh, it was wild and dramatic and his stuff wasn't even painted um, for the most <laughs> part. So it's like, OK, well, I mean, did you really care about it all that much? Even so. All of the regular people who have an emotional attachment to the way things were and that comes from a, like a real place of enjoyment and not from a place of uh, what, what people would make fun of them for, for being like gatekeeping or, or any of these other labels people like to throw out to just dismiss mm-hmm. people's feelings and opinions about this sort of thing. That's the part that I hate about it, about that, like having that discussion yeah. is that, I mean, the, there are old things that matter to people that mean something to people that don't get better with age and <laughs> that the changes don't, don't, you know, don't reflect what made it interesting in the first place. You know, and bringing that back to age of Sigmar and fantasy, like I didn't get into age of Sigmar until they released the Gotrid Gernison model for age of Sigmar. Oh, right. And that was an example of bringing something from the past and they, they updated it for Age of Sigmar, but Gotrick was still very much the core fundamental of who he was. 
In fact, he was even more so because he was now he was just angrier, you know, but he still yeah. very much felt like Gottfried Gernison. And he was, I would say, you know, one of the vertebrae of the spine of the character of the old world. Uh, yeah. An important thing that was lost. And bringing that forward was it was a good move. Uh, but there are certain things that move forward in Age of Sigmar that haven't worked and the idea of the stormcast eternals is one of those things i think that it just was too much like look fantasy space marines that's a valid criticism for them and i and they're cool oh, yeah. and i'm sorry but that's a valid thing to just be like was that necessary like okay fine uh, yeah yeah, and and going back to the the edition changes, I, I in every edition change, there's always a group of people that that want to stick with what they know. They don't want to they don't want to bother learning a new uh, a new edition. And and uh -huh. yeah. luck, luckily now with with Facebook and and some of the other social media outlets, you're able to f to create a space for for people that also enjoy still playing an older edition. You know. Um, it's not going to be as common and it might be get harder as time as you know time advances and especially as more editions come out but um, usually you can find I, I i know if i go on facebook now i know i can find a second edition group if i want to play <laughs> second edition 40k sure um, yeah i still i still have all my templates <laughs> <laughs> but i, I, tell you, I don't know that you'll have more fun <laughs> yeah um but but in in and and i think that's what kind of feeds into that nostalgia like there was, there was always someone uh when squats were announced there were a couple people that mentioned how like their buddy's now going to start playing 40k because squats are back you know think and and that leads that and maybe that's why games workshop made them because they knew people were going to want to play it because of this the, what, what they heard about them and now we're going to find out what happened all this time yeah that's a and side guys you might you might get a few people that you know might come back because they're back this assumes they like the new the new design yeah which we only have like one or one two model. pictures of but which is yeah which is funny because it's totally different than the necromunda uh, ones mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> he's it, he, he's seen some stuff man um, yeah but yeah i mean you're right I guess what I'm trying to reconcile with this is, yes, there are some really absurd takes on just hating new things because they're new, but there are also some really callous and dismissive ways of addressing the way things that people love are being lost. And mm -hmm. I, while I, I mean, I see both of those things. I, I don't want to just outright dismiss casually any of it, but um, I also, it's, because everything is more complicated, it's it's not like you can just always be Team A or Team B. Sometimes it's right. like you're straddling that line. It's like, well, I'm really interested in seeing the cool new ideas they came up with, Leagues of Votan. But yeah. is it even going to resemble the old squats? And if you're the person who loves the old squats, like if it doesn't, you may not want to cross that line over into the new thing. It may feel like, you feel nothing like the thing that you loved. And I don't want to dismiss that person's experience. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's like, well, that's what I'm curious about is to, as to what, because I mentioned before where they had in the past, they had an issue with, well, okay, what do do we do with these guys? I'm curious what, what they actually do do with the, uh, with the league and uh, what, where they take their design, especially with vehicles. And if they have exo armor, similar like Terminator, that's not egg shaped, you know, things of that nature. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I am. I think it'll be fine going by this first one. He doesn't look overly comical like the original ones, which I don't mind. Um, you know, and and if that's just the basic trooper, I, I think it looks pretty cool. You know, you know, even with the steel toes. Um, but uh, I don't know what else Games Workshop has at this point that they could bring back, unless they bring back like Space Land or something weird like that. Which yeah, I guess a, they could. A revival of the <laughs> old ones would be very strange. Uh, I mean, they could bring they could, with the uh, Trader Guard uh, sprues from Blackstone uh, Blackstone Fortress. They could bring back a Renegades and Heretics. Well, yeah, Renegades or yeah. well, Lost in the Damned is what they were called in Third oh, gotcha. Edition, or Renegades and Heretics from Forge World. Which, if you play Seventh Edition, you know what that army was. Yeah, I played yeah, that yeah. army. <laughs> right, or early Eighth Edition, where it's like just a bunch of psyker dudes. Oh yeah, early eighth, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I think that well with, with the depth of the of the fluff of Warhammer, because mm-hmm. you literally have forty thousand years of fluff they can either take from or just make up. Um I I I I think there's a lot on the nostalgia end that they can they can still mine and give it a, a a current a fresh look basically this is what it looked like back uh-huh. in the day we're going to redo it and present it again but that also leads to the new the issue of like rules bloat which we could always talk about <laughs> oh yeah that's that's a whole series um well i i, I kind of want to touch on this a little bit too with like an example of something that's it's not 20 years old it's barely even eight years old but I don't know if you noticed the the rejection among certain parts of the Horus Heresy community, which I would I would equate to the 40k equivalent of historical war gamers. Yes, uh, very very much so. Yeah, the but the rejection of many of the designs in the new box set, uh, particularly mm-hmm. the idea that six you know Mark six armor would have been available to the sons of Horus or right. And, you know, and and then looking at the Praetors and how distinct and unique the Praetors look, I had a conversation online with somebody, which I, I generally avoid doing this sort of conversation with people online, because when someone's outside of punching distance, you know, you can't <laughs> um, you can't always Mike Tyson on a plane, somebody. But right. um, the. The, the general complaint was that the new Imperial Fist Praetor looked like he belonged in Age of Sigmar or that he was too much like a Primaris Marine. And the, the embiggening of the plastic <laughs> Mark VI Marines to a more quote-unquote true scale size that wasn't mm-hmm. just, just, just quite not Primaris sized, but kind of sort of Primaris sized. Right? Yeah. Um, like, let's talk about that a little bit, because we got we had this opportunity to look at how 
to look at how a um, a community over a short you know span of time can look at a reimagining or a revitalization of something that was struggling and is being brought brought forward with a little bit of a new design flair, but while still respecting, at least trying to respect the source material and the and the the perception of people as, as to what that means versus what it actually is and and what they think they understand about the setting versus what it really was. Like what do you think yeah. about that? Do you think that it, the Mark Six are just like, here's Primaris again, guys? You know, <laughs> it's it's sometimes hard to have a discussion with someone in regards to some, especially the more like historical aspects of the quote unquote historical aspects of the game, mm-hmm. things like Chorus Heresy or the Bad Dab War, things like that. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people will take it as as written and won't question it in in that regard mm-hmm. i mean i've listened to a few podcasts of 30k podcasts especially or, or youtube channels where they talk about the mark six yeah and every time they talk they you know I, i've heard both sides i'm on the side of like anyone can use the mark six uh and the yeah. reason for that being there is fluff written by games workshop that allows for any legion to have mark six armor mm-hmm. yep and and i th- i think i think that in in gw updating it yes there's a bit of a scale creep from what i can see they're not as big as primaris i'm and, and this it's just, i have the same issue with my chaos space marines yeah, because the new chaos space remodels are slightly bigger. They're almost primary size. Yeah, yeah, they're big. In. So they're just like the Mark Six. So they're slightly bigger than the old Marines, but sl- smaller than Primaris. It's that performance enhancing warp drug. <laughs> it's got to be it. So, so I'm currently in the process of basically retiring some of my smaller Marines, um, but and replacing them with with new because I, I like the the new models the yeah. new chaos space ring yeah. i like the mark six models well the, you the know, new they, scale they not there feels right you know yeah but the problem is i've had a whole, ar- whole army of mark threes and mark fours and i put in these mark sixes i, I have to see them in, in person uh, and i don't know how jarring that that size would be that doesn't mean i'm not going to use them mm-hmm um, especially if the size isn't that significant. And once they have all the weapons and heavy weapons and all this other, you know, bells and whistles, the size might not, not even matter. Um, but I think, I think for myself, it, cause I don't have a 30 K army. I don't play 30 K cause I don't play seventh edition. <laughs> um, but I'm willing to give this a try because now a lot of stuff is going to be in plastic and easier to get access to. Yeah. I well, think the size is a yeah. whole yeah, it's a whole other thing. But. Yeah, and and I I think the size issue and the mark issue is a moot point for myself because I just want to get past that barrier of entry in regards to resin. And and even if it's the size is slightly bigger, I, I don't think it's a big deal. I I think a, I think it's like a tempest in a teapot for some people. Yeah. And it's already been proven in certain in other places where you, 
everybody had access to it. And you have to remember, Games Workshop has said officially that the fluff in game, the fluff in 40k is not. It, I don't want to say not canon, but it's very mutable. Yeah, which is one of the things as as a lore master is one of the greatest weaknesses of the setting is it's it's like a, someone who has like one foot out of their marriage. Like Games Workshop has one <laughs> foot out of the marriage with their lore because they don't have the but, courage to just say something is the way that it is because they can just kind of go with the but, next cute thing. Yeah, because that gives them an out. Yeah. I, I actually enjoy that aspect of it. I think it's not. I hate it. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it because it it gives you flexibility in in creating your own narrative, especially. I think that that's useful for players. And but I also think that there are certain things that you should be like, no, actually, I'm kind of committed to this in the relationship right now. And <laughs> like this, this is a key fundamental part of of our quote unquote marriage. And right. I'm not going to deviate from this. Um, right. No, I, I, I get, I get where you're, where, where you're right. coming from, where, where it's like, OK, I need it to not change. I need I need some stability in this yeah. in this relationship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's kind of where I come to like this, this Mark six versus Primaris comparison, because this in beginning of the Mark six, this sort of like quiet. Oh, by the way, he's half centimeter or more taller. It's fine. <laughs> like that, that happening is exactly what people who hate the Primaris say should have happened with the Primaris. But oh, instead okay. of just, just a gradual increase in size. Yeah. Which was already sort of happening anyway. And yeah, could, because listen, like I have a bunch of the old tiny Marines. It's dumb. that oh, They yeah. were like, they had smaller heads than a guardsman. That's dumb. It shouldn't have been that way, but <laughs> Uh, and I love the size of the Primaris models, but that's the only thing about Primaris that I love. Everything else that I do to Primaris that makes it engaging for me is mm -hmm. all the ways that I take all of the good stuff from the old range and try and slap it on there to make it look like it's good. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Black Templar release was pretty much the only, it's the only Primaris thing that had half enough character to really feel like you're actually playing the faction. Right. And that is a huge problem with the way that the Primaris release came out. But with the Mark VI Marines, like if I, because I have a ton of the resin and the plastic Marines from the other releases. Yeah. And what I did was, because they are, in some cases, different sizes, is I just mix the different sizes up in squads to make it look like there are some guys who are just taller or shorter than yeah. the others. And it creates kind of an interesting visual dynamic when I give them these different, you know, mixed armor marks within the same squad. Because it also kind of tells a story about how these squads are put together after serious losses. But it also creates yeah. like some body diversity among the models themselves, which I think creates visual interest. And I'm not talking about like, this guy, he's the 800 pound space marine. And his fat rolls are coming out of his greaves. Like, no, not not that kind of body diversity. They're still mega muscle murder machines. Yeah. But the idea that not all of them have to be uniform, the same size all the time. I think that that can add to it a little bit. That, that's just yeah. my opinion. And, and, and you have to remember, it's it's 
it's essentially a civil war and supply lines are not always going to be as, you know, as readily available as, as they, you would like. So they'll have to scavenge from their enemy, you know, basically, because that's also another reason they could have Mark six. Well, only loyalists had, well, if I kill this loyalist, I can just take his armor, right? Yep. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. And, and that, that explains like, you know, the, if you're, especially if you're playing late, like Siege of Terra or even scouring, Mm-hmm. You it would explain why you have like a mix of marks or partial or even even on the body. You have a make you have a mark two torso with a mark three legs. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's what I could get, you know? Yeah. Um that that's why the Mark Six doesn't bother me so much, like it does some people. Mm-hmm. But like like we talked about earlier, some people have a way that they see the setting or they see at least maybe for their legion. Maybe someone plays Sons of Horus and he doesn't like the Mark Six because they never had Mark Six. His army has no Mark Six. Fine. Your your chapter of, you know, your thousand Sons of Horses from the main Legion only use this type of armor. It's not it doesn't need to be. I think people put too much into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, people like what they like and people be compassionate about, you know, things that they like. So. Yeah, I'm a bit more flexible. Well, we want it's like we want to cultivate that passion because it it can be fun without yeah. turning it into something that's just so draining to manage, mm-hmm. uh, particularly from an opponent's perspective across the table. I mean, yeah, it, there there are a few things even in a narrative event. There are a few things more frustrating than rolling up and playing against somebody who's completely unprepared for your particular army build, but it was built within the parameters that were given in you know the event packet yeah and looking at you like oh so you're doing that kind of a thing you know <laughs> it, it really shouldn't have been like this and you're just like oh gosh well let's yeah. try to enjoy the next three hours i guess um or hour as it ends up being as i mm-hmm. proceed to crush them but it and that's that's not even that's that's not even a vindictive way of the game going about. It's just they weren't prepared for it. I played the game. I ended up succeeding. It was a bad matchup. I'm sorry. But it's it's very taxing and it takes a lot more energy as the opponent of somebody like that who wants to nitpick that way. Even though, I mean, you can't always give them the benefit of the doubt that it comes from a place of caring about the game. It Mm -hmm. just cares more about their perception of the game. Right. Um, now, now, personally, uh, I don't I don't hate the idea that 40K's lore moved forward. I do feel like the the Primaris reveal was really forced and contrived. Um, it wasn't executed like a like a masterpiece of of, you know, forewarning and storytelling. It's not the, the climactic payoff to the end of a Brandon Sanderson book. It is right. It, it was something that's like. Okay, we're gonna make this work. We're gonna make this work. It didn't. It wasn't terrible. And the sort of the cleanup that they've had to do after the fact with like the Dawn of Fire series and the primaries mm-hmm. reveal in the lore that's happened, you know, four to six years after the tabletop reveal of those things. Like they've they've <laughs> yes. done some good disaster cleanup on that. I, I mean, I got to give them credit for it. And it's a tough job for an author to pick up those pieces as well. Oh yeah, uh, those poor guys always trying to make the design studio look good and oftentimes succeeding. But um, 
part of me will always wonder if the hate for the new sizing of Space Marine would have stayed if we had just quietly done it without really saying out loud that mm -hmm. these are new Space Marines. But I, I also really like the idea, and you know, there's something that kind of breaks the, the romantic hopelessness of the setting, but the idea that there's somebody <laughs> in here who's actually trying to make a better future. Because I think, right. that I, frankly, I think the game and the narrative need that. I think that's the one thing about Stormcast Eternals that works. It's like, okay, we ended the world, chaos won. Now we're going to fight back and take it. That's actually engaging. That gets me motivated. That makes, because you're like, all right, we, we are going to take back what we lost. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea of splitting the galaxy in two and having half of it that's basically, you know, the Wild West to overuse that trope uh, gives us the opportunity to take back something that was lost. And uh, someone made the point once that, you know, in World War II, a lot of the most advanced technology that was coming out of the war was coming from the Germans. Uh, you know, they had jet aircraft that could fly circles around the American aircraft, but they yeah. just couldn't produce it fast enough to stop what was coming. Of course, it didn't help that they continued to devote their resources to genocide and all that other stuff. But um, the fact remains that the Imperium can be advancing and, and technology can be innovative and restored and they could still lose. Yeah. Uh, and while I certainly don't want that to happen as someone who's, who's definitely picked team humans are better than chaos, but um, <laughs> I think that the narrative can survive the Primaris. And I think that oh, yeah. the idea that uh, things could be better that injection of uh, a hopeful future, like even if it's a remote one amidst all of the, the tragedy that is this future is good for the story and good for the game. But that's that's how I feel about it. I, I think with the dawn of. Uh, I what, what the series is called Dawn of Dawn Fire. Fire. Yeah. Yeah. With the Dawn of Fire series, I believe that's where they're kind of like pushing the narrative. Mm hmm. If I remember correctly, I've only read like the first book um, or the first two books um, where, where now they're starting. We had the, you know, the Citrix Maledictum, mm -hmm. which I would I would compare be the equivalent to Archeon getting the all points, or, yeah. you know, Archeon winning. And now I think where where uh I think they're trying to steer it to the point where you they're starting to that the Imperium is starting to push back mm -hmm. um, in the same way the Stormcast are. Um, yeah, I don't know if they're as successful because it's a kind of different dynamic in regards to how the whole universe works compared to Age of Sigmar. Um, sure. But I, I, th I think they're trying. I think Games Workshop is trying to do that. We'll see. We'll see what happens if they if, uh, as, as they move the, the story along. Mm -hmm. Now the groundwork certainly. Uh, the, the tricky part about this is that the codexes are like a hundred, two hundred years ahead of this story already. Like, yeah, and the timing of it just did, is not working for me because you know with with the Horus Heresy you expect everything to have been you know to have happened in the past and there's that sort of 
well, this is just this one person's perspective in a, in a war with records that have been lost or changed or, you know, um, hidden for 10,000 years. And you know, there's the legend of what happened versus the, the actuality of what happened versus the perception of the person who was there, but unreliable narrator, like all that's super frustrating as a lore master, by the way, but the, um, the, the Donna fire stuff, it, it should be coming out alongside the stuff that's happening in the narrative, in the books, in the, in the codexes, in the game, mm-hmm. because by the time that the Primaris came out, like all of the Indominus Crusade was over. Like the, the lore started after the Indominus Crusade was over and the plague yeah. wars happened. It's like, okay, all of this stuff happened that we don't know about, but suddenly half the galaxy is fine, despite it being not so fine, just barely. And <laughs> it's going to take us about six to eight years to fill in, fill in the, you know, begin filling in the blanks there. I think that that right. was a bad move. But that being said, you know, uh, I'm giving the primaries a chance. I still, I still like the old Marines better. I like the old armor marks better. I like the character of the models and the things that have come out better. Uh, but That's I that like, nostalgia kicking in. Well, it's, it's not even <laughs> nostalgia because it's not like, ooh, the good old days. It's just I like the way this looks better. Um, or I engage with this a little bit better. And there is something that's sort of emasculating about, look, we're better than you space Marines because mm-hmm. of reasons and there were hundreds of thousands of us but we were hidden and nobody knew about it nobody knew about it over 10,000 years nobody spilled the beans it's like really really like that doesn't the program even, not do that's not even consistent with their own the, the the way that they structure the inevitable corruption of their regime like and that that speaks to the mechanicum regime and the imperial regime i mm-hmm. just that that just doesn't work for me, but hey, like we have really—I don't want to say we've gone off the gone off the rail. I think we've just uh, missed our stop. But uh, yeah, uh, that was a, a really fun talk, Adam. I appreciate you coming on. And uh, no problem, I had fun. Yeah, giving giving me your perspective on it. And um, when when I do a uh, another episode that fits more within maybe some of John's interests, I can have him on here, and we can. We can just salt the crap out of the episode. Yeah. Um, Talk about salamanders. Oh, yeah. That would be a good one. (laughs) Why I love salamanders during Salty John. Yeah. That would be great. But thank you so much for coming on. No problem. It's my pleasure. Hey, tough luck tonight, buddy. Yeah, tough new hotness, more like it. <laughs> sure, pal. Same time next week? Sure. See ya. <sighs> what am I gonna do about the new hotness? Commando, we need to talk. Ah, Cato Sicarius. No, it is I, Robute Gilliman, and we need to talk about your performance tonight. Aw, oh, come on, Robute. He's playing the new hotness. What can I do? Well, the Codex says to use the terrain to your advantage, not leaving your whole army set up in the open. 
But, Rabute, the best I can do is this packing styrofoam that came with my dad's TV. Heresy! You can do better than that. Buy some MDF terrain from Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming? Isn't that that company run by the guy who sounds like he has strep throat all the time? Hey, bro, not cool. Silence! Don't get distracted. This is how you forgot to bring in your reserves. But, Rabute, I don't even know what MDF means. It's woodcut with lasguns or something, it's not important. It's quality, durable terrain made for all modes of play with different themes like desert, ruined city, industrial, aliens, and more. But I hate painting terrain, it's boring. Never fear, Frontline Gaming has painting services as well. You're right, Lord Gilliman. I should order some. But how do I do that? Where do I start? Go to www. FrontlineGaming.org to find out more about terrain, miniatures, painting services, hobby articles, and events. Gee, thanks, Rabute. Any more advice for your loyal force commander? Not now, Commander. I have to go back and check on Marnius. Last time I was gone this long, the 500 worlds became the 375. Go ahead and check out www.FrontlineGaming.org. Tell them the Chief Librarian sent you. Nostalgia. Why do we look at the past with so much love? We see it more than we see new stuff nowadays. Look at the entertainment that is constantly on display. As I am recording this, it is either the night after or the night of the release of the latest episode of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney Plus. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a favorite character of mine from episodes one, two, and three, and I appreciate Ewan McGregor as an actor, and I also appreciate that he's back for the series, and it also fills this sort of, what would you call it, like a lore gap, my lore master sort of need to know what happens to the things and around the things that I like, just, it's very tempting. At the same time, I'm also concerned because the people who are creating this content are not the same people who created the old stuff. Good memories are something that we want to keep and preserve, provided that they aren't simply nice little lies we tell ourselves about how the past really was. That's something we do all too often. And we do it about all sorts of things. Now, my dad, for example, hates working with plastic models. Hates might be a bit of a stronger term, but I will at least say that he prefers working with pewter or metal models. I've asked him why before, and he talks about the weight, the feel like you have something in your hand, something solid, something, you know, from my perspective, you could put in a sock and injure somebody with. But it's what he started with in this hobby. It wasn't a bunch of plastic miniatures. It was a bunch of pewter cast Napoleonic infantrymen and cavalrymen. And that's what he knows. Now, from my perspective, the newer models, even of the, say, Eldar miniatures, if you took the Howling Banshees of yore and compared them with the Howling Banshee plastic kits that came out, the new kits are absurdly good in comparison. For a variety of reasons and, and the weight is one of them because what did we have to do with those old howling banshee metal models 
we had to find some way to lower the center of gravity so the darn things would stop falling over all the time. I remember the first Blood Angel Terminator librarian model that I put together was a pewter model of a librarian with a force axe. It was that sort of librarian that would fit on a 25 millimeter base in Terminator armor. So he was, you know, a little bit scrunched, but he leaned forward a little bit as part of his pose. And for the life of me, I could not get him to stay standing up. So what did we have to do? We had to put a little magnetized oval on his base after gluing a washer to the bottom of it and basically attaching it to that magnet oval so that he could lean forward on that and not fall over. Terrible young man Chris paint jobs aside, what I have now to work with is a plastic Blood Angels Terminator librarian with an axe with a wide dynamic pose on a 40 millimeter base. And it is absolutely, by every stretch of the imagination, a better model than the one in the past. Nevertheless, my memories of fighting with that Terminator librarian on the battlefield against my brother's very nicely painted Tyranids, and oh boy, the number of times that ruddy Broodlord got through my invulnerable save and hit me. Ugh. Nevertheless, there is a soft spot in my heart for those old Terminator models, even on their itty bitty little 25 mil bases. Just talking about it right now, it makes me want to pull it out, strip it down to its metal again, and repaint it with the stuff that I know now. I don't even know when I'd use it again, though I suppose with Armor of Contempt being a thing now, Terminators have their place. But much like with everything else in Warhammer, that place could come and go and be more or less efficient at any given moment. From month to month, we have no idea what the game is going to look like. The rate of change is so fast that I was actually opining on the nostalgia of old 6th and 7th edition this last weekend at War Games for Warriors. Of course, 7th edition was a continuation of a long-standing Warhammer 40k trend, one that for the most part still exists within the new Horus Heresy rules. This idea that you can go into combat and each combat consists of initiative steps, though there's of course a lot of the sprinkles on top. You have your challenges and whatnot that never used to exist within the rules. But if you looked at the rules from, say, 3rd edition all the way up until 7th edition, it was recognizable one from the other. Small tweaks happened over the years, but by and large, everything was the same in terms of unit profiles. And the lore didn't advance that much further either between those years. It was always minutes to midnight. The galaxy was about to end. Things couldn't get any worse. And we coasted on that story for close to what? 25 years? It was almost 30 years by the time the changes came about, Gilliman was released, and the idea that perhaps the galaxy may not be as doomed as we always thought entered into the existing lore. Many of the old guard, you could call them, people who've been in the hobby for a long time, decried this change, this idea that things could be optimistic and hopeful, that the story could perhaps have more of a happy ending than it did or likely would in the past. The coming of Gilliman 
to the Warhammer setting was marked as essentially the beginning of the end of the Warhammer people knew and loved. Now, for my part, I tend to sit back and watch. What I mean by that is when I see a group of people talking together about Warhammer or, dare I say the word, politics, I like to sit back and watch more than I like to engage, unless it's something that directly affects me. But even then, it's only if I know the people I'm talking to have an understanding that the conversation itself has merit and that we can all learn something from it. Needless to say, this is not very common when it comes to internet discussions about anything. And that's just as true as Warhammer as it is for politics. One of the things that we forget about thinking and typing and talking is that for many of us, it's a way that we organize our thoughts. It's a way that we think. And so when you know that you're in an environment where you can think out loud without people jumping down your throat, something that is, again, very rare in the history of the Internet, and particularly in contemporary Internet times, it can be difficult to find those places. And I'm very deliberately not calling them safe places because ideas are never really safe when they're shared. There's always the possibility of challenge. And I think the more that we embrace the idea that ideas can be challenged, the better off we are as attendees to that conversation. But I digress. What does this have to do with nostalgia, you may be wondering? For me, starting off with my Obi-Wan Kenobi example, it has to do with the respect we pay to the things that come before and the ways that we build off of them into the future. Now, there are good and bad ways to use nostalgia as a means of motivating people or gaining interest. You know, a lot of people talk about the different things that are a gateway into Warhammer 40k. Things like Kill Team, where you don't need a full army. There are lots of little things that are designed to get new people interested into the game. And there have been a lot of rumors of conversations with executives at Games Workshop or with people who work at stores. And I'm not going to name any names or, or anything because this is all mostly just hearsay, right? It's people talking online about a conversation they heard about somebody else having that basically summed up the idea that Games Workshop wasn't interested in keeping its old customers, that it was only interested in bringing in the new people. Well, if that's the case, why are we facing so much nostalgia in the hobby? Because nostalgia only exists to excite current customers, doesn't it? Like New players have no understanding of why something would be so significant. Let's take a character like Sly Marbo, for example. A few years ago, good old Sly, who is a Sylvester Stallone mockery, I guess you could say, just in the same way that the Tyranids are clearly inspired by things like, you know, the alien from the Alien franchise, Xenomorphs. Sly Marbo was a little joke at Sylvester Stallone and Rambo. And already right there, you're into like referential nostalgia territory because Rambo is not a a new series of movies. Let's put it that way. Sly Marbo's legend 
is probably made the most infamous by the people over at text-to-speech. And what I mean by text-to-speech, for the very few who are aware of it, it was a satirical Warhammer series called If the Emperor Had a Text-to-Speech Device. Now, I'm not going to get into the drama related to content creation and the death of this series on YouTube in this episode, though it is a topic that I'm considering for a future one. Nevertheless, the the meme of Sly Marbo was, I guess, etched in stone by the antics of this satirical series. In fact, the influence of this series likely had a lot to do with the release or the re-release of this character from his old metal model to, again, a new plastic one. And if I even remember correctly, there was somewhat of a hmm, a reference to the text-to-speech, or at least to the infamy that they gave this character in the marketing of Sly Marbo. But unsurprisingly, this character who had been a mainstay in the Imperial Guard Codex for very, very long, now had new life breathed into him by the release of a new model and new rules to bring him up to speed with that edition of the game. How do you think this was received? Well, if you were around at the time, you know that most people, generally speaking, were pretty excited about it, myself included. I don't even have a Catechin Guard Army, but I managed to get myself a copy of this model just for the fun of potentially painting it up someday. So I guess in that sense, it at least worked on me, right? And like so many of my other models and characters and limited series XYZs, it is sitting unpainted in a box in one of the drawers. Nevertheless, I'm glad that I have it, even if I don't really have a use for it. Nevertheless, there are groups of people who look at the new things that are coming about, the new things that are based on the old things, and thinking the experience is cheap, or that the company is out of ideas, or even that the company has so little respect for its players that it would bank on nostalgia for old things as opposed to actually bringing forward the old things that need the love the most. Aspect Warriors being an example of this, though they have gotten some love recently, like much of the Eldar range, there is still much, much more that needs a lot more love to be brought forward. Then enter the announcement of the Squats. Squats as a faction in not just Necromunda, with their old name of the Squats, but now there's the Leagues of Votan. And while I've been in the game for quite a long time, the Leagues of Votan didn't exist when I started playing the game. There were only a few little references to the old faction of space dwarves known as squats. It was a legend, and it even became an adjective, getting squatted. The idea that something was just going to get discontinued. The death of a model, faction, franchise, whatever you want to call it. Squats held this sort of mystical, mythical place in the vernacular of Warhammer 40k. And now we are seeing a return to that idea. Now, from my understanding, the people who have interviewed the model designers and the game designers over at Games Workshop 
when asking about what happened with the squats, the answer usually boiled down to, we didn't feel like they were different enough from the rest of the Imperial range to justify continuing. And from a certain perspective, that makes a lot of sense. However, the answer to that, if you are truly invested in keeping them, is to develop them further, not to just let them die out. And now we have the opportunity in real time to see if 20 plus, 25 plus years of development in secret of the idea of the squats transformed into the leagues of Votan is enough to justify the amount of time that it will take for people to get in, reinvested in squats. Is the legend of the squat enough by itself to motivate people to buy this new faction. Squats may just be the Obi-Wan series for Games Workshop, where instead of Ewan McGregor reprising his role, we have the Space Dwarves reprising their role, learning a few new tricks and getting a little bit more depth along the way. Of course, if you wanted to be really meta about this, you could acknowledge that episodes one, two, and three were just nostalgia bait for people who liked episodes four, five, and six, that learning the history of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker as young men fighting in the Clone Wars was all just a, an attempt to reach out and snag that audience who was captivated by this story, who wanted to know what happened. And it's been long enough now that we are nostalgic for the nostalgia bait. Could the same be true of these new leagues of Votan? Well, I'll tell you what, since I don't really know a whole lot about them, aside from the things that probably most of the community knows about the squats at this point, I am actually genuinely excited to see them. Though a lot of that just comes from my own personal interests in dwarf-like factions. I've collected dwarfs since I was a kid. I played the dwarf in Hero Quest when I was less than five years old with the rest of my family. And I've been collecting dwarf models and dwarf armies ever since. So I guess it stands to reason that I might have a little bit more interest in this than others. However, that does not mean that everyone's going to feel the same way about it. For me, it will be interesting to see exactly how well the leagues of Botan do from a sales perspective, if they are actually able to make them interesting and different enough from the other Imperium stuff to motivate them to keep making it. Personally, I hope they succeed because I want to see cool new things in Warhammer. And what better time, by the way, to have a sort of, what would you call it? A renegade style faction, a techno renegade, who use pseudo-artificial intelligences in defiance of the precepts of the Adeptus Mechanicus and their religion to have things that are new and different and don't fall into the same dogmatic traps of the Imperium that we are so familiar with. For after all, Gilliman, the great iconoclast of the Imperium, is just the right kind of swing and power to brush over some of these minor details of doctrine and dogma to welcome this lost offshoot branch of humanity back into the fold. But what's even more interesting to me 
is the possibility that the leagues of Votand may just be an independent human faction, the first real independent child of Terra that falls outside the scope of the Imperium, that isn't stuck in the doctrine and the dogma of the Emperor. So far, the only version of that that we've had in Warhammer up to this point has been Chaos. And indeed, I remember reading through some of the Chaos Space Marine codexes in years past and how they talked about the inevitable fall of a Space Marine chapter that deviated from Imperial teachings to Chaos, that it was either the Emperor or Chaos and nothing in between for them and those who served them. And I always thought that that was so narrow. The squads offer the possibility that perhaps this isn't something that's necessary anymore. We can have independent factions and what better playground to put them in than a galaxy that is sundered, an Imperium that's cut in half and half of an Imperium where anything goes. So I believe that the nostalgia for the squats is better timed now than it would have been if it had been continued in the past. And while I'm sure that it's going to call back to some of the classic things that we know and love from squat history, like the land train, at the same time, I think that it's going to be something new and different. And I really hope that Games Workshop is brave enough to accept that possibility and then do something with it. So if we're going to keep comparing this to Star Wars, and I am going to do that, and I'm not going to apologize for it because... Well, my son has just decided to move from Spider-Man to Transformers to Star Wars as his key interest with a nice hmm, bedrock foundation of Minecraft to punctuate all of that, that Star Wars is on the brain. This happens when you get upwards of 40 or 50 questions in a row several times a day about old Star Wars versus new Star Wars. Star Wars Legends, so the pre-Disney Star Wars stories, and what's Star Wars canon now. And while I was a Star Wars nerd as a kid, nothing quite prepared me for what this <laughs> monstrosity ended up becoming. Now there's two different versions of this universe and I'm having trouble keeping them straight for my own child. But what does that have to do with 40K? Well, isn't 40K's episodes one, two, and three simply just the Horus Heresy? And hasn't that game stirred up a bit of controversy in the last couple of months? And it's been persistent controversy. I mean, the number of discussions I've seen about Mark VI armor that despite weeks, nay, months of knowledge about this have ended up causing more and more and more online debate. And a lot of that spurred on by the type of people who like mixing up those kind of trouble. Uh, trouble conversations on the internet and in Facebook groups. The idea of you know the historical war game of Warhammer 30k, our episodes one, two, and three, is very relevant to this conversation. Because much like we knew that little Annie, little Skywalker, was going to turn into the biggest, baddest villain of the 1970s, and maybe even since then, doesn't mean that we weren't interested in how the story played out. Now, from a lore perspective, we have the Siege of Terror books and the Horus Heresy books that preceded them, all 50 or 60-something of them 
in the innumerable short stories, and you can have your conversations about the quality of those. One of the things that we don't really have to worry about is somebody else coming in and taking the story and saying, well, you know all of these Horace Heresy books that we wrote? Well, all those are invalid now. And who knows, maybe Disney will come and buy Games Workshop at some point. I doubt it. I'm mostly joking. But we at least have some understanding of what quote-unquote really happened during the Horus Heresy. And the game itself is an effort to allow us to enjoy that playground together. And I think it speaks to the love that people have for this franchise, for the Horus Heresy, and for the lore that's been established, that they care enough to be maybe upset, upset might be too strong a word, about changes or things that go contrary to their understanding of how a thing was. Because when you care about something and you see it potentially change, that can make you feel like you're in unfamiliar territory. And that's not where someone wants to be in a hobby. I may have mentioned this in my interview with Adam. It's been some time since we did that, so I'm just going to bring it up again here. There's a group of historical gamers in my area who like to play the World War II game, uh, which is called Flames of War. And many of you are probably familiar with this. Those of you that aren't, it's almost sort of an epic scale, like epic 40K scale World War II game, where all the tanks are about the size of, I don't know, uh, a silver dollar and very, very small with even smaller infantry played in very, very large scales. I believe the game itself is made by XGW employees, like roughly 95% of all miniature game designers nowadays. Regardless, one of the things about gaming in that community is in 40K, I, if I have a chapter of Space Marines, I can paint them more or less however I want. But when it comes to a historical game, if you, like another friend of mine, show up to game days for Flames of War and your tiger tanks are hot pink, well, people get a little bit weird about it. It breaks their immersion. And then, of course, there's the questions that come along with that. It's like, well, what are you really immersing yourself in? A good versus evil conflict against the worn out villains that are the Nazis, the sort of slap this on whoever you don't like enemy that's been caricatured to death so much that you don't really understand it anymore in the popular culture. What exactly you're trying to engage with there? Well, I'm not going to make some trite argument that playing as Nazis in a World War II reenactment game is some kind of political statement on behalf of everybody there. It's simply a matter of in the same way that in 40K we have to have the traitors, we have to have our enemies, we have to have our Xenos to contend with, a World War II game where the Allies just fought each other, it feels a little bit empty, right? And what does painting your Tiger Tanks hot pink add to that experience? Well, for you, it might be satisfying and kind of fun to see, I don't know, a hot pink you know, King Tiger tank rolling down and blasting away all those poor little Shermans that rolled off the factory floor just to be can opened by superior German engineering. It doesn't really 
help your opponent very much when you do stuff like that, does it? Something about it feels off. It feels wrong. It breaks the immersion. And immersion is something that matters in these kinds of, what would you call it, faux historical situations. And of course, that immersion can go too far, right? But every resistance to something that changes what's known about something, whether it's the Horus heresy or a World War II reenactment game, is not simply dismissed by a label such as gatekeeping. And gatekeeping itself has become a term that is so loaded in this hobby, in pretty much any hobby, right? I mean, bring it back to Star Wars. There are people who are constantly talking about how Star Wars is gatekept by old fans who don't like the Disney takeover, who are willing to do whatever it takes to ruin the experience for everybody else and to keep undesirable parties or persons out of that, out of the enjoyment of that hobby. And anytime you even say the word exclusion, people's eyebrows get raised and it's an easy way to create a villain. I don't find these conversations and these labels to be nuanced enough to describe the situation. As with most things, I think extremes in either direction detract from the enjoyment of something. Let's take 30K from my perspective. I am a Blood Angels player. I know how the story ends. We know that Anakin turns into Darth Vader. We know that Sanguinius dies. Now, if I were to show up to a game table with my own custom rules and my own version of history that Sanguinius was alive and I expected my opponent to just accept that or call them a gatekeeper because the way I wanted things to be didn't exist in the quote-unquote canon lore, but if they tried to keep me out, they were the bad guy. That's the wrong approach to a situation like that. In that situation, I'm being the bad guy. The idea that you must accept everything that I want to do and validate it, or you're toxic, is toxic. But if you flip that around and tell a Horace Heresy player who plays an Iron Hands army, who wants to take part of a campaign in the Siege of Terra that there's no way that he could bring or participate in his in, with his army in that battle, or that Ferris Manus could never ever be there, that they were never willing to engage with an idea or a deviation from, from canon, and that they use that as a way of excluding somebody, well, maybe that's pushing it too far the other way. There has to be a negotiation between the two if this is going to be successful. You can't just throw the word gatekeeper out every time you don't get your own way. And if you're a new person going into an established group of people, people who have a long history of loving and caring about the story, the history, the playing of the game or the enjoyment of whatever media, Whenever you don't get your own way, you can't just throw out the word gatekeeper in an attempt to get your own way all the time. Engage with each other, negotiate. If you are the person who cares about this thing that happened in the lore and you're only interested in playing a game that follows those specific things, lay that out at the beginning. Find the people who think the same way, play with them but also accept the possibility that 
adding something spicy or new or playing a what if scenario with somebody else's army could end up enhancing your own enjoyment of it. And the idea of it is built into the game itself. Everybody's going to have their own place where they draw the line. The line that says, you know what, I really can't engage with this anymore. This is affecting my fun. For me, that line is crossed whenever I see too many, what would you call it, external influences into the ways that people model or, or play out their armies, or the people who deliberately go outside the bounds just in an attempt to troll people. Uh, some easy examples come to mind. Hello Kitty Marines or Buzz Lightyear Space Marines or Titans that are painted to be things that don't exist within our understanding of the hobby. There aren't really My Little Pony Legios of Titans walking around. And while to the person who owns that, it might be a fun joke and you may get satisfaction out of aggravating people with your choice of hmm, decor for your Titans. I might say that if the main reason you're doing something is to annoy other people, then perhaps that sort of gatekeeping becomes necessary because that attitude is not conducive to a healthy gaming environment. The people that approach and interact with these stories are inevitably going to do so in different ways. They're going to have their own biases. Those biases are going to inform what they like or dislike about particular factions. It's like the ongoing debate between Imperial Fists and Iron Warriors players. And that's also funny because the lore kind of sets that up. It invites people to embrace with that kind of a conflict. But at the end of the day, that rivalry is something that can bond people as opposed to just simply a desire to anger or troll people. Enjoying something, enjoying the nostalgia of something, and being worried about what the changes mean for your enjoyment of the game is not gatekeeping. And the best way to figure that out is to have the conversation and to figure out what each person's intent is. Let me give you an example. I am currently in the planning stages for a, what would you call, a historical event in the Warhammer 40K timeline. I am going to be doing a narrative Siege of Ball event. And this siege in particular is the devastation of Ball. Now, if I put my historical wargamer hat on, it would be easy enough for me to put this event on and tell everybody, okay, these are the acceptable chapters that you can have as successor chapters or paint schemes. These are the companies that were there, the characters that were there or not there. And the only Tyranids I will allow are ones who are painted in the purple and white of High Fleet Leviathan, because I don't want you to break my immersion. This is the wrong answer. In fact, when I was inviting some people to play, one of the first and most excited responses I got was, oh, I've wanted to paint and build a Lamenter's army for years and years. Would you be okay if I brought that? Now, it's funny that they say that because literally the only successor that didn't make it in some way to the devastation of Ball were the Lamenters. <laughs> <laughs> right? It would be easy enough for me to say, 
well, I'm sorry, I know that you would get a lot of satisfaction out of doing this. I know it would be really fun, and they are a Blood Angel successor, but they weren't there, so I'm going to deny you of the opportunity and motivation to do this thing for the sake of historical accuracy. And maybe I would have been justified in doing that if that's what I was trying to, I guess, put out there, if that's the event that I was trying to make. But I opened my <laughs> I opened my grognard heart to the possibility that having that army there and the person who played it would enrich the experience instead of take away from it. That exploring the idea that maybe things could be different would be more fun. Otherwise, why am I doing this event in the first place? Now, I have several different ideas and missions planned out. There will be the Lictor's incursion into the heart of the Fortress Monastery's fusion reactors. There will be battles on Ball Secundus and Ball Primus against the Demons of Chaos with the Flesh Terrors and the defense of the Astronomicon Relay, or I should, I should say Astropathic Relay, because it isn't quite the Astronomicon. But if I just wanted things to go how the books went, I could just give everybody a copy of the book and say, read this, thank you for coming to my event. The introduction of dice and the fallibilities of the game to the scenario give us plenty of time and plenty of opportunity to change the way history could have played out. So while I may have, on the one hand, chosen to be flexible with the idea of lamenters there at the devastation of Ball, nevertheless, I did set the expectation with this player and with the others who I invited that Primaris Space Marines would not be allowed for this event. This is strictly a firstborn only affair. So there's an example of doing something to keep the spirit of the quote unquote historical setting alive, as opposed to just letting things be wacky and wild and silly. There will be no Primaris Marines, no Hell Blasters, no Deep Striking Inceptors, and there will be no Primaris Death Company. Of course, unless you've read the end of the book. But I consider that nostalgia because one of the things that I find myself pining for are the old days of the Marines, the Principia Adeptus Astartes, as Archimagos Dominus Belisarius Call would say. The primary space Marines, aside from Mephiston, who is basically just a bigger version of the character I loved from the beginning, just haven't wormed their way into my heart yet. From a modeling perspective, I can't engage with them creatively without making them more like the Marines that I liked in the past. Those Mark VI and Mark VII helmets and the diversity of the armor types and the old tactical Marine squads. Heck, even just the beauty that is the Blood Angels tactical Marine kit that is no longer in service. When I look at those models, I feel the love that I've felt since I started this hobby, even before those kits were out. The old Marines have a place there. There's something about it that I love. It's one of the things that makes the Horus Heresy so fun for me, even though those are, even, are wildly different than the first Marines I ever put together. 
when I look at the Principia Marines, I still feel the attachment to the thing I've loved for decades. And the Primaris, despite having been out for a couple of years now, they don't fill that space in my heart quite yet. When I read stories that involve the Primaris, it feels different than when I read stories about the Marines from the Horus Heresy or some of the older novels. When I read The Devastation of Baal and I read the Dante novel and I see the struggles of the Marines, but still the incredible power and awesomeness of those old things, the tracked tanks, the predators, the rhinos, the ways that that army spoke to me don't exist in the new Primaris range yet. It's one of the reasons the Kratos tank got me so excited because it's a new tank, but it looks so much like the Space Marines that I know and love. And while I brought this strange army list to the War Games for Warriors event, knowing that it was kind of a joke to have no Primaris Marines except for Mephiston himself because I can't bring legends, just this feeling of attachment to these old Space Marines. I had three squads of five tactical Marines. Two of those squads had a heavy bolter, heavy weapon Marine in them. I had a Rhino. I had Trogdor, which is my all-flamer ball predator. And ball predators in general, just they were always my special tank, right? And there's no replacement for that in the Primaris range right now. Everything there felt comfortable. It felt like the old game that I loved, even if I was playing the new way with the new missions. And I still had a good time with it. And it made me smile to think about how I brought the past into something and was still able to really get some joy and satisfaction out of it. And I think that's the heart of nostalgia. I think that's the stuff that really we should try and focus on as opposed to nitpicking about whether or not Mark VI armor should look a certain way or exist for certain legions or should be readily available, whether something breaks the narrative like that. There's few things in Space Marines more nostalgic than a Beaky Marine. Any of us who are around at the time remember what it was like to have them, that those were Space Marines. That was almost all Space Marines at the time. And the best thing about that for me was I was able to bring that and see it bring joy to a few other people. I had so much encouragement and support, even if I had probably a fair dose more sympathy or even, what would you call it, uh, humor at my choice of units at this tournament last weekend. But nonetheless, I did have the respect of people who understood what it was and why I brought it. I mean, the main reason being is what it, it was what was accessible to me with so much of my stuff still in storage. But I leaned into it. And now I didn't take first place. And there's no way I got thumped the first two games. And there was a point, especially seeing how easily some of the new Chaos Knight stuff just creamed through my army, that I was wondering, well, did I make a mistake here? But the love of the models that I had and the experience I had playing them and being able to actually perform well for the rest of the tournament made me love them even more. So find that thing in Warhammer 
that you love and hold on to it. Hold on to its memory. Keep it fresh. Keep it strong. Bring it forward with you. Don't live in the past. Be willing to accept some changes in the future, but never forget why you love something in the first place. So that's my little nostalgia rant for all of you. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will round out this segment with what I hope is a positive message for new and old people. There's so much to enjoy. Soak it all in. episode 12 and our discussion about nostalgia, liking things from the past, a little bit of conversation about historical gaming, and some light discussion on gatekeeping, even. It's just, this went all over the place. For the next episode of The Chief Librarian, we will be returning a little bit more to our roots. You could say that we'll be growing a little bit more of a spine, because that's a book joke. But we will be talking a little bit more about lore and philosophy. Now, some of you may remember that I had a series of philosophy articles on Frontline's blog. And let's just say this episode made me feel nostalgic for those days opining on the morality and philosophy of the 40k universe. At some point as well, I'd like to fit in another author interview, though... I don't have any firm commitments on that end, so stay tuned for that. However, I do hope to continue to stay on the every other week schedule like I was before, and look forward to seeing you again in the Librarius. Hey, you. Yes, you. Right there. You are listening to the Frontline Gaming Network. So what does that mean? That means that you have access to a bunch of different and interesting shows. Right now, I'm listening to a lot of Signals from the Frontline because who has time nowadays to follow on your own and get all of the latest news in the gaming hobby? It is streamed every Wednesday, and I never catch it for the stream, but I do catch it later. I especially enjoy Kicker's commentary. He is 40k hype man USA, and I challenge anyone, I dare you, to try and prove me wrong or to upstage the hype that is Kicker Kalazdi. So, with my recommendation in hand, go and listen to Signals from the Frontline on the Frontline Gaming Network. I am Chris Morgan, and you are listening to a Creative Commons licensed podcast. Some rights reserved.